So I'm going to start off with a heavy concept. So strap in and get ready. Diversification of your skills are critical to the sustainability of your career. Again, diversification of your skills. Now, that sounds like a financial statement. Diversification of your portfolio to minimize risk to maintain your financial investments. However, it is sound advice for your career. Now, we celebrate you for being highly technical and capable within a narrow area. But how often do you expand your skills? Are you good at teaching and training? Do you happen to know how to fix things and do problem solving? It's critical. Now, my conversation with David Shiner Khan, it is about the entrepreneur versus being an employee and which has greater risk. An entrepreneur has to survive by building multiple streams of income and leveraging many different skills to service client needs. But could it also be you? If you're a CEO or senior leader, do you develop your people to have diversification of their skills? I wonder and think about it. Let's listen to David. Unless you have income from other sources, being an employee is financially way riskier than being an entrepreneur. There's a real simple reason why. If your paycheck is your primary income source and your paycheck disappears, your income goes from 100% to either zero or somewhere close to it. You might have unemployment or some other resources, but it takes a huge nosedive. When you're an entrepreneur, one of the things that's important to know is you need to build multiple sources of revenue because that protects you from unexpected downturns. So if you have a very simple consulting model where you have five clients, each one is paying you an equal amount. If one client for some reason disappears, you've lost 20% of your revenue. You haven't lost 100%. Welcome to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. I'm Deb Coviello, and as the drop-in CEO, I drop into businesses and assume the CEO role to enhance the human element and increase the results they achieve. This podcast is about bringing you conversations with expert guests who have achieved their greatest results built on a strong foundation of purpose, values, and elevating people. If you're a business leader, entrepreneur, or even just getting started in business, Join us as we build the skills you need to achieve your goals. Hello, my name is Deb Coviello, founder of Illumination Partners, and I want to thank you again for joining me on another episode of the Drop-In CEO podcast. Week after week, I get to speak to amazing leaders and share their insights with you. If you like this program, please subscribe, rate and review and share with others so we can continue to bring you great programming. And now I'm honored to share the mic with my fantastic guest, David Schreiner Khan. After 28 years as a highly skilled employee, David was told that his job was over. And in spite of the immediate trauma and fear, he knew that as his next step, he'd rather work for himself and have more control over his destiny. And that was in 2006. And today, fast forward, he is a thriving entrepreneur, podcaster, speaker. He is the founder of the Smashing the Plateau and Going Solo Brands. He is guiding high-achieving professionals who yearn to impact the world with their knowledge and creativity and become successful consultants, coaches, and following long careers. So it is my distinct honor to welcome you to the show. Thank you, Deb. I'm really honored to be here. 
Thank you so much. And just for our listeners, he has an amazing podcast. I was recently a guest on his show, Going Solo. An amazing host made me feel so comfortable. But, you know, the reason why I felt it was so important to have you uh, have him on today's show was uh, we share a similar background. We were are, <laughs> were practicing engineers at one point doing our craft within a corporate environment and then transitioning and finding a different way to bring our talents and gifts forwards into the world as an entrepreneur. So I am very excited to engage with him on his journey, learn from him and bring his insights to you. So David, please share a little bit more about yourself personally and the work that you, your journey and the work that you're doing now. Between four and five years, I had two jobs. And then I left the field after that. And the trigger for me actually was a job loss at that point, right after my second performance review, second year anniversary in in my second job. I had a strong performance review and I got a nice raise. And then a month later, my boss called me into his office and he said, David, I have good news and bad news. The good news is you're doing a great job. The bad news is you don't have a job. And I'm like, oh, um, nice to know that I'm doing a good job, but really not nice to know that I'm unemployed. And I should have seen it coming because the company I worked for lost a lot of business. It was um, a consulting company that had about 150 engineers on staff, and they ended up firing about half the staff, including me. So that was like the, the first trigger. I was in my late 20s, and I was looking at, you know, that caused me to reflect and sort of look at what my career trajectory was likely to be if I continued to work as an engineer, which... You know, as you know, Deb, one of the things that we're told while we're in school is it's a great discipline to study because you're likely to get a good job, you work for a good company, you will earn a good salary, you'll have a comfortable life, you'll be able to retire. And and, and in those days, when, when I started, they told us you'd be able to collect the pension because companies had pension plans. That was long before 401ks and IRAs. So at that point, the economy was actually not not so good. And there was a lot of corporate restructuring that was beginning to go on in America. And I saw that there were many engineers, mostly men in their 50s, that were getting laid off. Often it was a few years shy of being fully vested in their pen. So it was, you know, it was a big hit to them immediately because they would, they lost their income, but it was a bigger hit because what they had been counting on for 20 plus years was suddenly out the window. I thought to myself, A, I feel pretty badly about what happened to me now. I'm young and I can, I can find another job. But do I want to put this kind of effort into a situation where I might be loyal to a company, but I don't know that the reverse is going to happen? I think that I think we've been sold the bill of goods in our industry and I have to I have to find a better way to make a living. And then, you know, the short answer, the the short conclusion to this story is that I went into the not for profit sector, which was a really significant change. People who knew me and were close to me told me I was crazy because not only was it, you know, I was throwing, basically tossing my engineering background out the window, but I ended up taking a pay cut to start in the field. And and it was the compensation trajectory in the not-for-profit sector was way less than in the corporate sector. But I was stubborn and I 
decided to continue to work in the not-for-profit sector, which I did for over 20 years. And that was where I learned a lot about leadership and management. My first position was as an executive director. I, I think I managed to convince the organization to hire me because it was a relatively small organization with a very modest budget and really wasn't in a position to hire somebody, I think, with, with tons of experience in the field. And I was willing to come in at a fairly low salary just to get my foot in the door. And one of the things that I learned in that job, because I came in as, as I said, it was a small organization, but I was still in a supervisory role for the first time. And it was um, an older organization that, was, that had recently gone through major restructuring and was growing very quickly. So one of the things I inherited was a handful of employees, most of whom were, I would say, like a generation and a half older than me. That had some challenges because these are people that were pretty entrenched in the way they worked. And as, as the organization was growing and needed different things, I had to figure out a way to benefit from the strengths of these employees. The organization was not in a position to terminate them. I don't think anybody really had that in mind. And it really wasn't the right thing to do. And that, that was one of the reasons why I went into the not-for-profit sector. There was, a, uh, I think, a stronger sense of responsibility to the people involved in the organization. But one of the things I learned is how important it is to be respectful of your direct reports, that your job as the supervisor is to help the people who report to you succeed. And the other thing I learned, and, and this got repeated in my second job, where I also went into another organization as an executive director, inherited a much bigger staff, is there's a big difference when you come in from the outside. And this, I think, applies to anybody who is either CEO or executive level. There's a big difference between inheriting workers and hiring workers. And I think there is um, an inherent personal motivation to help anybody you have hired to help them succeed. Whereas when you inherit somebody, often that motivation is absent. And I know from my show, Going Solo, many of the people that I've interviewed who've been pushed out get pushed out by new supervisors that inherit them. So I was, have always been very sensitive to making sure that I learned what the culture was coming in from the outside and learned how to adapt to the culture so that I would fit with the culture and also learn to, to understand what would help the people I inherited, help them succeed in their jobs. You know, in, this, in the, the second job that I had, when I ha inherited a much bigger staff, one of the direct reports I had was the, the organization's receptionist, who I learned over time was a woman who was at that point probably thinking maybe mid-40s, who recently became a widow. Her husband, who was a CPA and had his own, I think, it was, I think he had his own firm, he died quite suddenly. And she was really distraught. And someone offered her a job really to sort of keep her mind occupied. I don't think she, she really needed the money immediately. I think, I think there were you know, she had assets. But I began to learn how the job was important to her. And I also discovered that she was ex exceedingly skilled. And within a year, I 
managed to convince the organization that she should be the office manager instead of the receptionist, which was a, a big jump. Um, I managed to, to get her a sizable raise and she performed superbly in that role. So that's, that's an example of when you drop in as a CEO, whether you're doing it on a contract basis or you're coming in like I was on a permanent basis, you need to be able to work with the people that you have and figure out a way to, to let the best in them shine. That's a great example of something I've learned as an employee. You know, I can go on and talk about how I ended up becoming um, an entrepreneur later in my career. David, it is so important, some of the things that you said, and I could touch on all of them, and I may come back to all of them. But one of the things, and this is the reason why I knew we would resonate with each other, is you talk about the value of an inherited staff and uh, taking the time to understand their past. And I talk in the CEO's compass, the past is the culture, the people, their upbringing, what are they proud of? And then I also talk about pride, taking the time to understand the human on a more deeper level and understanding, and I say intellectual property, meaning raising it from just their subject matter expertise. And when we take the time to get to know that as you had, you build trust and you never know, you may not need to hire people outside the organization to have all the assets that you need. Really great insight. I am grateful. But now you transitioned. And I, this is really where I'm more interested in is that you made the jump, you made the leap. I'd love to know how Really how that happened, like how did you know you were going to do that? And I'm really keenly interested in at what point did you become a viable business and then sustainable? Because in an entrepreneurial journey, there is like the decision and then I'm going to try it. And then it's like, okay, I got something going. So tell me more about that transition and progress. Sure. The two examples that I just gave were earlier on in my career as an employee. And then I stayed in the field. As I said, I was in the not-for-profit sector for over 20 years. One of the things that I have always thought about, particularly subsequent to my first major career transition is, what's my plan B? And I realized how important it is to always have alternatives, whether you're an employee or an entrepreneur. And I'd actually thought about doing something as an entrepreneur when I was in my 20s, but I I knew nothing about it. I didn't know anybody who was an entrepreneur, and it really was not feasible. However, I did find that the work that I was doing at an executive level gave me a lot more control over my environment and over my destiny, and I also had a better sense of the give and take between me and my employer than I had earlier on as an engineer. And I'm a person who really likes control. I'm great working with structure, but I'm generally not particularly good working with a structure that somebody else sets up, especially if it if there are elements that don't work well for me. So one of the things that has always bugged me about being an employee is not having total control over my camp. And I, I, I actually had a guest recently, I'm, I'm going solo, who was talking about this. It's like actually a really big issue for me. I've always worked way harder than was necessary as an employee, and I got great results. But I didn't like the idea, if I needed to take care of something personal for an hour at some point during the day, having to get permission from my boss. It, like, it just didn't make any sense. And there were days, like a long time ago, there were days when I needed to do something that was focused work, where when you're in a supervisory role, you spend most of your time helping your direct reports. So, and I'd have a to-do list every day. And if I got 5% of it done during the course of the day, I was doing well. But there were some things that were deadline-driven. I had to actually produce them. And if I could stay home and work on those things, even for half a day, it would make a huge difference. And that was like, A, not the culture, 
And B, I always felt like I was bumping up against the structure to be able to do that. Whereas now as an entrepreneur, I control the structure. It's, it's a no brainer. So for me, like the, the structural piece and the, co- and the, the control piece was always an issue. You know, over time, I actually got to know a lot of entrepreneurs. One of the benefits of being actually being in the not-for-profit sector is we had board members who were very successful entrepreneurs. So I got to know them quite well and know about how they built their businesses. And I had hired a lot of consultants and I thought, you know what, I, I can be a consultant. I, I can do it. I can solve the same kinds of problems with the same kinds of organizations. So I basically had, had planned my exit for a long time. The only question was timing. About a year before I started my business, there was some restructuring going on in my organization that had nothing to do with me personally or my performance, but it was pretty clear to me that it was going to and uh, it would result in some redundancy with my skills. So, you know, the handwriting was kind of on the wall. You know, when you've been in, been in a place for a long time, there is a benefit, there's a financial benefit to being pushed out. So I figured I would wait and let somebody else select the timing so that I'd have a little bit of a runway to start my business. That was that was the basic motivation or this, the you know, thought behind it. You know, you said some really interesting things in here that perhaps makes a difference between somebody who wants to do something and somebody that really wants to take lead. You said, I can do it. Whereas early in your career, you said, uh, what do I know? I can't do that. And it's so interesting to see, not only in myself, to say, I can do this versus I can't. And the thing I mentor other people in is think about your mindset and what are you telling yourself? Do you have the capability? Yes. Do you have the time to try? Yes. What's holding you back? Me. So again, message to people listening out there. And you know what? I probably too was an entrepreneur long before because I, same exact thing. I needed to take care of personal things. I needed to have creative time. And it really, really, I wasn't having fun anymore when I could not control the schedule. And while I'm busier now as an entrepreneur, I control just about every element of my schedule. And so it makes the work much more rewarding and have the flexibility. Very interesting. That's for sure. (laughs) Do you want to talk about sustainability? I would love to move to that because you can have a million great ideas. You do need structure, as I have been learning. You still need time for creativity. But I keep asking people, how do you know this is sustainable? Because occasionally I have some doubt. I've had some quarters where I've had good revenue. I've had others that are not. How do you know when you're sustainable? Well, the the real answer, Deb, is that you'd never know. <laughs> Thank you, you. Right? You never know. <laughs> I would say... Financially, unless you have income from other sources, being an employee is financially way riskier. And, I, and, and there's a real simple reason why. If your paycheck is your primary income source and your paycheck disappears, your income goes from 100% to either zero or somewhere close to it. You might have unemployment or some other resources, but it takes a huge nosedive. When you're an entrepreneur, one of the things that that's important to know is you need to build multiple sources of revenue because that protects you from down, unexpected downturns. So if you have, you know, e- even, you know, if you have a very simple consulting model where you have five clients, each one is paying you an equal amount. If one client for some reason disappears, you've lost 20% of your revenue. You haven't lost 100% or you haven't lost 80%. If you have different kinds of revenue sources, like you have 
some clients that are paying you on a monthly basis, like I just described, and you have some speaking income, which may be much more sporadic, and you have you could you could sell intellectual digital products, you could run events, you you know, there's lots of different ways as as a high achieving professional or a thought leader to make money. But if you know the more of those you're able to develop, again, if if something drops off, then you have some protection. Like we saw this past year, people that were doing paid speaking and getting most of their income from paid speaking in person, all of a sudden they had a problem. I had a number of guests on on my shows that were paid speakers as part of their revenue stream. The ones that had other types of revenue beyond paid speaking didn't have to make as much of a pivot to recover. Again, I think you can be much more sustainable as an entrepreneur. Now, on the other side, in my own case, in my business, I started off as a, with a very simple time for money consulting model, which is quite common. I didn't know anything about other business models. And I was getting leads from my network, from people I knew, which is the most common way to get started. And I actually, I had paying clients, not day one, but within, I don't know, I'm just trying to think, it probably took me two, three months before I got my first paying client that started to build. And within... I think within a year or so, I was probably um, earning a significant amount through my business. But then over time, that also changed. I started my business in 2006. 2008, we had a major recession. I started to feel that about two years later, like 2010, 2011. I had a lot of proposals out and conversions were taking a nosedive. I had to find some other kind of business model. And that was when I started looking into recurring revenue models and started focusing on building relationships and beginning to solve something relatively easy and at a relatively low cost to so somebody would get to know me and my work and then looking for some ongoing problems where I could be an ongoing solution. And I, over time, have focused building primarily recurring revenue as part of my business model. Because for me, it means I don't have to keep filling the pipeline the same way as I would if it were a transactional business model. So again, that's like another level of sustainability. So very sound advice. And when I think about this, how it transcends the different listeners here, I mean, a CEO who has to have potentially a plan B or an exit strategy, think about how we can be developing ourselves or maybe business models that we can take on as a side gig or something that we can drop into. And even, you know, an up and coming person in your career. Yes, develop your craft within a career, but always be thinking about what if. So I love the thing about the plan B, but I want to bring it back to you a little bit. So you have been in this business model. You help people who are moving from corporate into an entrepreneurial role and maybe even beyond smashing the plateau. I would love to know some examples of where you've dropped into a situation, a company or an individual's life. Where were they and how did you help them have significant impact? A good example is um, a client who had been both an employee and a consultant at different points in her career. And we met, and, and this is someone I actually knew, although not well, knew for many years. And we saw each other and we're you know, doing some catch up. And I discovered that her, I'm trying to remember, e- either her current position as an employee um, had just ended, or maybe it was under threat of termination. 
And she joined uh, w- one of the ways that, that I work with clients is in curated small groups. So there's support from me and also there's peer support, which is so important because when you're going through these transitions, it's it's a very lonely process. And you're it, usually we're talking earlier about mindset can do and, and can't do your mind plays tricks on you. And if you're in a supportive group, the group will really help you focus on what you can do. So anyway, so this person became a client in one of my groups and has, and actually first built up consulting revenue with several clients and then ended up working with one client became kind of the major client. They offered her a job and she ended up taking the job. But one of the things that was really important to her was being able to long-term build her own business. And so she, one, one of the, one of the caveats with taking the job was being able to have consulting income in addition to that, that they wouldn't consider that a conflict. And so the job essentially provided recurring revenue through a paycheck and she kept doing consulting and the consulting has gradually been building and getting stronger and stronger. We've really helped her with pricing, with negotiating, and and positioning so that the consulting portion of her life has now become really significant. And she's also really expanding her reach beyond the niche that she was in, both as an employee and as a consultant. So she's her base is, is way stronger than when we first started working together. And the possibilities are... Um, are pretty significant. She's now earning way more than she was at the beginning and, and has really good possibilities for the future. Amazing. But again, this this is right, this is not a quick fix. These things take time. What I just described is a several year process. Yeah. So don't go out and buy a five step process for fifteen hundred dollars and expect to be able to be making millions. So it is a process both on yourself and what is it that you can do to serve people. So tell me more about the brand. You lead with smashing the plateau and going solo. Tell me how those two platforms and podcasts came about. You know, as I said, I started my business as a solo consultant and it it like like anything it it gradually morphed. Um, I started picking up some private business clients and ended up connecting in particular with people like me who were solo practitioners, if you will, consultants, coaches, single person, professional service businesses. And in parallel to that, I started doing some content creation, first a blog, then I launched the first podcast, Smashing the Plateau in 2014. And my focus has always been um, like, like what you just said, that there are a lot of steps to get to, to get what other people perceive as breakthrough results. So my focus has always been on what does it take to implement enough steps with pivots so that you will start to see positive results and other people will start to recognize those positive results. So it's not about getting started. It's not about quick fixes. This is about really long-term focused discipline and perseverance because honestly, that's what it takes to be successful as an entrepreneur. You know, at the same time, as I was becoming more and more known for helping people like where I was 15 years ago, consultants, coaches, and, and other solos that started their career as an employee and transitioned into entrepreneurship, the podcast also became more focused on that particular topic. Then I decided in 2019 to start a second podcast specifically on that initial stage of the transition from employment to entrepreneurship especially 
when the timing is not your own, when, when you've been pushed out. And one of the things that I've learned is it is it's way more common than people realize. The data that I've seen indicate that for people over age 50, probably the majority of people will will experience a job termination. And you know, it happens to the best of us. And it often may not be what you did, but how the organization may have changed. So we should never really take it personally, but also take a time to reflect if there's something we can learn from these things. Again, it's happened to me, it's happened to all good people. But I have just a couple more questions here. So what makes you different? What's your superpower? Because I talk about my superpower when I engage with clients or one-on-one coaching is my ability for active listening, being able to reframe and see what the client cannot see. What is your superpower when you engage with the client? I hate to um, <laughs> hate to say the same thing, but what I hear most from people is the ability to listen to them and for people to really feel like they're seen and heard. And I, I, I talked about it, the example early in my career when I was first had to supervise people who were a good bit older than me. The way I got their uh, got their trust was spending time listening to them and, and uh, trying to understand what was important to them and making sure that if I could help them with what was important, I would do it. One of my key audiences are CEOs, potentially those people over 50. But this question could be targeted at anybody because you never know when life changes for you and you're not in control. What should somebody, seasoned professional, talented professional, should be doing now or thinking of to start preparing for going solo? Well, I think it's really important to have some some strategies in place. So have a plan. And I would say you could actually have multiple scenarios. You don't need a lot. If you have too many, it's going to be confusing and overwhelming. But if you have one or two or maybe three scenarios of what you would like to be doing instead, if for some reason you can't do what you're currently doing and it, and it happens suddenly, what would you do? That's That's number one. And number two is you should also plan to take a sabbatical after you get terminated because and this and I've heard this from many many guests that I've interviewed on going solo in particular that self-reflective process is really important and if you have been in the same discipline and known for a particular thing for a long time it is going to take you a good bit to untangle from that our self-identity, our self-worth, they're very tied to what we say we do for a living and and what and who we work for. So you need space. It's almost like you have to go through a grieving period to untangle that. And you can't do it in a, in a day or a weekend. You really need time. You need a you need to plan to actually do the self-reflection and not rush into something. B, you you need to have the financial reserves to be able to do that. And one of the things I have seen with people is when they have the financial reserves to take six to 12 months for self-reflection, what they end up building afterwards is so much more powerful than what they would build if it were a month out or two months out. But again, you need the mindset and the discipline to take the sabbatical and you need the finances to do it. Great advice. And I was fortunate to grieve and take the time cry and write and walk and listen to podcasts and read. And, you know, I was actually asked for an interview three days after I had left corporate and I literally was kicking and screaming. I did not want to go back into that. I still needed time. But after time, 
I got clear in my direction of what I wanted to do. And I think just for anybody, if ever given the opportunity for a sabbatical, it's a wonderful period in your time for you to figure out what's next. This has been an amazing conversation. We could have gone on and on about people, what are they feeling about and what when should they connect with you? But I would love to just give you a last couple moments of some closing thoughts, the people you want to connect with and how can people connect with you? Because this has been an amazing interview and there's so much of you to offer to others. What I would say is if you have any concerns, you're you're unsure about what path you might be possibly taking, wherever you are in this in this journey or this transition, whether you face you're in the middle of a transition or you think you might be facing one and you want somebody just to talk it through with you to try to unpack some of what's behind it, I'd be happy to do so. Wonderful, David. And if people wanted to connect with you, how best can they reach you? They can go to our website, smashingtheplateau.com. That is the repository for both podcasts. There's a contact form on there. You can get in touch with me. You can do it the old-fashioned way and actually make a phone call. 212-731-0770. The phone gets answered by a live human, 9 to 5 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday. You can find me on LinkedIn as well. I'm pretty easy to find. I'm, I'm the only David Schreiner Khan out there. Well, I am grateful for knowing the only David Schreiner Khan, and you've been an amazing guest. Our listeners will truly value this conversation. I wish you continued success, and thank you so much. An honor to be with you, Deb. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. My new book, CEO's Compass, will change the way you think about leadership, navigate rapid transformation, and elevate the leaders of tomorrow. If you're feeling off track, the CEO's Compass Assessment will guide you to peace of mind in days, not months. You can learn more about the CEO's Compass by visiting my website at dropinceo.com. Now go out and lead, inspire, and achieve your goals.